Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What happens is usually people kind of appear or images appear like imaginary friends suddenly. And it was Oliver and he was saying what he, the first line in the movie, which is, I wasn't in love with him. And then there was the image of that same person licking the bottom of a bathtub. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year. And we're breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race, which is heating up, y'all. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving last week, perhaps got a little rest, maybe even caught up on some movies. Uh, and guess who's back? EW's <sighs> Oscars expert Joey Nolfi has returned from his travels. Joey, how are you? I'm doing fine. I am. We're improvising today. Improv acting. Now that the SAG strike is over, we can get back to <laughs> we can get back to our craft. I am record. <laughs> sorry about my audio this week because I'm recording live from a literal closet inside my parents' spare bedroom. I'm still home for Thanksgiving, and oh. it's, it's not giving technical prowess today. Well, I mean, here's the interesting thing is that folks watching don't normally know where we're sitting and I'm normally in a closet uh, recording each week. Um, so so that makes it all fun. At, at least one of us has uh, has found the right audio this week. Um, by the way, Joey, you are back just in time because uh, our <gasps> guest today <gasps> is the writer and director of a movie, which I know quickly ah! became one of your favorites upon seeing it a few weeks ago. Emerald Fennell and her latest movie, Saltburn. Uh, so, Joey, let me start here with you. Um, you texted me immediately after you got out of this movie. Why did you love it so much? Uh, gosh, I, I, now I understand. Alphabetically. Yes, alphabetically. <laughs> now I understand why you were like not wanting me to do this on the podcast a few weeks ago because they're like, we're going <laughs> to have this you have to, you're like you're gonna have to do it again but i would praise this movie over and over and over again as i have been since i saw it i just think that it's so different and it's so um it's so much more than this sort of just cheap salacious candy coated kind of thing that people are describing it yeah. as and I think I'm actually just kind of disappointed by how I'm seeing some people talk about it because I just think it's such a smart um, social commentary that it's it, it I guess you could take it on the surface as being this superficial kind of movie. But I think you really need to consider every single thing about this movie. And once it all clicks for you, it it's just such a smart movie. I get so annoyed by these takes that this is somehow like Emerald Fennell talking down to the middle class or like raising the alarm that like oop the lower class goblins are going to come get you like that's just it's that's such a lazy take on this movie i just think it's actually about like i see it as a shot at the wealthy like the fallibility and fragility of the quote-unquote shield of power that money gives them that they're not really untouchable or as powerful or influential as they think that having money makes them so i, I just think that it's a really smart movie and it's i mean got 
future Best Supporting Actress Oscar winner Carrie Mulligan in um, a five-line <laughs> role. That's just, I mean, yeah. come on, it's it's amazing. Oh, she's she's delicious in this. Everybody really is. Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, um, uh, the uh, the daughter Allison Oliver is fantastic, and then of course, um, there's you know Barry Keoghan and and Jacob Alordi. In addition to it being one of your favorites of the year, do I remember right that you also said you think it's now one of your personal favorites of all time? Yes, yes, for sure. I think I, I have a running list of uh, like 100 movies that I keep as my top 100. And I th- think when I go and take another pass at it, I think it'll definitely be on that list for sure. You know, I should create that list because how many times do we get asked like, oh, what are your favorite movies? And I just go blank. Uh, so I need to create that list and just like have it on my phone at the ready. That's not what you told me last week. You told me that all five Airbud films are in your top ten. Joey, that was between us. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think I've that seen all the five. Wiggles movie. If we want it, all the Wiggles. Honestly, I don't think I've seen all of the Airbud movies. I've been being completely honest. But anyway, that's a discussion for another time. Um, circling back to uh, Barry Keoghan and Jacob Alordi, those two guys, along with like the movie itself, have like. They've taken on a life of their own on social media. All these, uh, you know, uh, especially on TikTok, I'm seeing a lot of people um, do the like me going into Saltburn and like happy and like can't wait to see this. And then me coming out with like the shock face. So there's a lot of that. A lot of influencers getting in on this movie. Um, But so that aside, that's all great marketing for this film. But does it also help its Oscar campaign in any way? No, I I think that. It also is, I mean, look, I know what you have to do to sell a movie. And I think it also begs the people to go into this more uh, superficial reading of the film. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know that that's aligns with how Emerald has been talking about this film yeah. uh, and you sort of begging people to look beyond what is actually happening on the surface yeah. and these more scan, quote unquote scandalous things that are happening in this film. Uh, so I do think that it, I mean, the movie works on that level too. I mean, you can read it like that, and I, but I think you come away with a much richer experience if you actually treat it as if it's a, a better, a, a film that's above all of that. And I do think it is a film that's above all of that, but I also don't know if playing, like, I mean, a lot of the Jacob and Barry stuff online also seems to be playing up a more superficial take on the relationship uh-huh. in the film. And it seems to be like a lot of gay baiting. Yeah. And I, I don't know if playing more gay in real life has ever actually worked for someone looking to get an Oscar nomination. Usually it's the opposite. It's like the actors who play gay, try to market it as a remarkable transformation and the bravery of a man playing something that's so far from his typical sexuality. So I think it's, it's good for social media buzz um, but even that's not really working because the film didn't exactly light up the box office that's when it true. went to wide release. I think it averaged a little over a thousand dollars per screen and wide release, which is, I mean, that's did not really well in limited release. Either. So I do think yeah. it's a, a hard film to market for yeah. different people, but, uh, I'm glad people are at least talking about it. Yeah. It's interesting. I feel like I've seen more. Uh, like on social media and stuff about uh, of movies that are currently in theaters more about that movie than perhaps any other. But to your point, the box office did not light up. So that's um, that's really interesting. Okay, so considering you think none of that will help its Oscar campaign, let's talk about which categories do you think this movie should be nominated in? 
should be. Okay, should and not actual predictions. Um, I would personally nominate it for picture, director, Barry for actor, um, Allison Oliver for supporting actress, uh, original screenplay, editing, cinematography, production design, and keep your finger down for this one. Jared's keeping a tally. But if we could go back and retroactively make Sophie Ellis Baxter's Murder on the Dance Floor an original song contender, I'd say that uh, too, but I cannot. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The the music in the film is fantastic. Um, I don't know if I, I don't think I would put the score um in the nomination slot, but I agree no, with all uh-oh. of you on those. Um uh as much chatter as like Rosamund Pike is getting, there is a scene with Allison Oliver near the end that is just holy mm. cow. Uh it's just phenomenal, and she earned what should be a nomination in that one. Okay, so that's like nine. It was eight. I think it was eight, but I wonder, that just made me think, I wonder if there's hope for this, for BAFTAs. I don't know how much British money went into actually making this, um, but uh, I I could see it maybe, um, I could see her maybe getting like the BAFTA Rising Star Award or Mm -hmm. something. so hopefully at BAFTA, BAFTA could could lift it up. Yeah. Um, okay. So you were at eight for which it should be nominated. Mm-hmm. Where do you think it actually could? Uh, at this point, I, I don't know if I'm just being cautiously optimistic. Well, I, not cautiously optimistic, but cautiously pessimistic, I guess it would be because I don't, I don't want to be disappointed, yeah. but I, I think... I really honestly can't see it getting nominated for anything mm-hmm. at this point. Um, I think it's really, this one is really going to, because it is such a divisive movie, I think it's really going to depend on what happens in the next few weeks. I don't really know that this movie's trajectory is predictable, but I think, if anything, I would say probably Barry is its best shot, um, because after seeing Rustin, I'm I'm not... At least if we're judging based on like the actual quality of the performance itself, I, I don't know that I'm buying Coleman Domingo's chances as a lock for best actor. Um, I, I, I don't think that that film is very good and I don't think his performance is very good in that. Um, I think and it comes down to a direction issue. I don't think it's Coleman's issue. I think it's the way he was directed in that film. I, I, I don't think the two things work together. So I think that he is at risk there and I think someone like Barry could maybe swoop in there. Uh, and take up a surprise slot there, but um, because outside of the the things that you see people talking about on social media about the content of the film, I think it's Barry's name that often comes up as being yeah. like, "Holy shit, this performance is amazing!" And I think yeah. it's also his first like Lead. sole leading role yeah. in a film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's been supporting until now, and I, I think he just knocks it out of the park. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. I um, This is a movie that I think should be on voters' lists, uh, and I hope they are yeah. checking it out. Um, I, I do worry um, that, of course, you know, some of the those kind of sh- shocking OMG moments are turning people off um, because they're just so caught up in what they're seeing versus why they're seeing it. Um which is really unfortunate because Oscar voter Sally Kirkland is about to turn off that TV <laughs> at when it gets to the bathtub scene. Sally Kirkland oh, is turning that oh. TV off. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. Sam Elliott, Sam Elliott watching this movie. <laughs> I love to watch 
Uh, one of one of my joys of, of watching this movie, I've seen it three times now, is on the second, third times watching other people watch certain scenes. Um, so yeah, I would I would love to see um, a certain group of demographic of people taking in this film. Well, Jared, our next awardist roundtable. Let's get Sally Kirkland, Sam Elliott, Sissy Spacek, um, and a bunch of other. Is octogenarian the correct word? You are asking for trouble. You are asking for trouble. Clint Eastwood? Clint Eastwood? Well, no. Okay. Let's remove Sally and Sissy from that lineup. We're just going to do old conservative men. (laughs) Oh, boy. That's a whole other. Wow. This is this is quite a. This is a, a, a weird fantasy journey we are going on with who we want to observe. <laughs> okay, so you mentioned that you think Emerald should be nominated for Best Director. Um, let's talk about that category really quickly uh, because it includes Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer. By the way, these are in no particular order. Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon, Greta Gerwig for Barbie, uh, Alexander Payne, The Holdovers, Yorgos Lanthimos. Poor Things, Ava DuVernay, Origin, Cord Jefferson, American Fiction, Jonathan Glazer, The Zone of Interest, uh, Justine Trier, Anatomy of a Fall, Celine Song, Past Lives. Um, it's uh, th- this category this year. There are some really uh, th- there's some great movies across the year period, but um, I-, I-, I find it hard for I, I don't know. What- what's your take on this category? Uh, my take on this category is that about 75% of the names you just mentioned are not, not in the running. Um, I, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's been a huge year for the big name directors. It's a year for the outdoor director driven films that sort of sold the project on the filmmaker's name. So you have Martin, I think is in there for sure. Christopher Nolan, your ghost for poor things. Oh, by the way, I forgot Bradley Cooper from Maestro. Uh, I, I don't think he's also, I, I don't necessarily think, I, I think that once Maestro starts playing wide, I think that more people are going to be, uh, sort of meh on it. I, I don't necessarily think that that movie is going to be Netflix's, uh, well, actually, I don't know what it, compared to what else they have on their slate. I don't necessarily. May, December. Todd yeah. Haynes, I forgot to mention him. Yeah. I, I just, <sighs> I don't know. I just feel like this this year's best director lineup is going to lean really commercial because I think Greta is now synonymous with Barbie and her vision for that movie is what made it what it was. I think Christopher Nolan's name is obviously synonymous with Oppenheimer before even the content or the actors of that name. It's Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. He's one of the few uh, directors out there now that can sell a movie on his name alone. Uh, Martin Scorsese is another one. So I, I just think that this is for me, I feel it feels like the easiest category to predict uh, just because I think that those four are locks. And then I think knowing the director category, the way it usually goes uh, an international leaning film uh, usually gets in there. So I would say probably Jonathan for the zone of interest, but I could also see Alexander Payne again on name alone uh, and the way that the holdovers is such a, distinct it's a uh it's an aesthetic and a feeling that movie and you get swept up in the whole 70s era and and it's i think a a real threat to this category too so um i think those six names are the names that i'm i'm looking at right now 
All right, uh, so let's talk about the Gotham Awards, which were held earlier this week. I'll run through those winners here quickly. By the way, those winners were selected by a jury. Uh, Best Feature went to Past Lives. Anatomy of a Fall won Best International Feature and Best Screenplay. Outstanding Lead Performance in a Film, which, by the way, is a gender-neutral category now for the past few years. Lily Gladstone won that, not for Killers of the Flower Moon, but for a film called The Unknown Country. And Outstanding Supporting Performance in a Film, also gender-neutral, went to Charles Melton. There were like 10 nominees, I believe, in each category, Mm -hmm. um, by the way. Um, Joey, who do you think stands to gain the most from these wins i think it's for sure charles uh for may december uh the last two supporting performance winners in this category since it's been gender neutral have been Choi kotzer and kihui kwan who both went on to win so uh charles i think needed this is like yeah. a good example of somebody who because got a big boost early and needed it because he was far from being a lock in the category. So this is where the momentum starts for him. But I also think past lives got a nice little boost. Um, But the Gotham's, I think often complement the Oscars race instead of predicting it. So, I mean, sometimes, I mean, you do have lineup like Nomadland, everything everywhere all at once winning in recent years, but then you also have like the rider and the lost daughter winning best feature. So it's just, it's a group of critics and journalists, no one with real ties to, you know, actual Hollywood insider voting bases. So um, publicity boost, great for past lives, great for Charles Melton. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think we should read too much into it. Uh, yeah, I think this is a great moment for Charles. Very happy to see him getting these accolades. Uh, you know, this is a guy who was really only known for Riverdale. Um, and uh, all due respect, I don't think anyone expected someone from Riverdale to like be part of the, you know, the Oscar race um, so soon after that show ended. But um, he's he's great in the film. Um, and it's a really interesting role. And you can tell that he um, he really relished in getting to do uh, something with Todd Haynes and, uh, you know, Julianne Moore and, and Natalie Portman by his side. So, so good for him. Very happy for him there. Um, lastly here, I want to continue talking about the Gotham Awards because, um, in addition to the awards that they hand out, the competitive awards, uh, they also give out lots of these honors for casts and, and directors. Um, one of those was the Historical Icon and Creator Tribute Award, which Robert De Niro accepted on the behalf of Killers of the Flower Moon. Something really happened, uh, by the way. Someone edited his speech and did not put the entire thing in the teleprompter. So he was reading his speech and then kind of toward the end, he realized that's not the whole thing. Pulls out his phone um, and uh, and this is what happened. Have a listen. I, I just want to say one thing. The beginning of my speech was edited, cut out. I didn't know about it. And I want to read it. It was, thank you. History isn't history anymore. Truth is not truth. Even facts are being replaced by alternative facts and driven by conspiracy theories and ugliness. In Florida, young students are taught that slaves develop skills which could be applied for their personal benefit. The entertainment industry isn't immune to this festering disease. The Duke John Wayne famously said of Native Americans, I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from them. There were great numbers of people who needed new land, and the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. 
Lying has become just another tool in the charlatan's arsenal. The former president lied to us more than 30,000 times during his four... Thank you. Years in office. And he's keeping up the pace in his current campaign of retribution. But with all his lies, he can't hide his soul. He attacks the weak, destroys the gifts of nature, and shows disrespect, for example, by using Pocahontas as a slur. Filmmakers, on the other hand, strive, and this is where I came in and I saw that they edited all that. So I'm going to say these things, but to Apple and thank them and all that, Gotham, blah, 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 Apple, but who, I don't feel like thanking them at all for what they did. How dare they do that, actually? Well, first of all, I'm glad he had it on his phone uh, so that he could actually do all that. Uh, and we have reached out to Apple, which produced the movie, as well as Gotham Awards for comment. We have not heard back from either of them as of this recording. Um, Joey, to be a fly on the wall backstage when all of that was happening. Well, given uh, some other recent developments with Robert De Niro, I don't know if I ever want to be a fly on the wall in his presence. <laughs> oh, touche. Okay. Yeah. But, um, I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I'm trying to imagine why they would have edited it. It could have just been for time. They were trying to shorten it. Um, but do you think there was any motivation? They were like, oh, we just don't want to get political here. Well, who knows if it was them? It might have been his PR. It might have been, you know, his, Fair. Uh, so I, I don't think, yeah, we I, we don't know who edited it. We don't know who took it out. Uh, I uh, Maybe Miss De Niro herself just forgot that she took it out. Like, who knows? <laughs> That's all. Yeah, that's all fair. Um, but but obviously, as we heard there, he gets he gets a little political, um, but it's Robert De Niro. So, of course, he's going to. Um, anyway, all of that said, I, I thought that was a um, really interesting moment um, at, at the Gotham Awards. And you don't normally see people realize that, wait, this is not the speech I wrote. Um, so he, he gave the rest of it there. Um, all right. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, Saltburn writer and director Emerald Fennell, the awardist, will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Welcome back to The Awardist. All right, so as I mentioned, I have seen this movie three times already, and I will gladly go a fourth time, uh, probably going to this week with some friends who have not seen it yet. Saltburn is a, uh, it's a wicked, twisted, dark, funny, but also sad story. Uh, and as Joey mentioned earlier, there is a whole lot more uh, below the surface here of uh, all of the superficial things that you have heard about. Um, but Point being, I cannot get enough of this film, uh, and I'm not really sure what that says about me, but here we are. Um, so by now, you have likely heard, uh, we kind of alluded to some of the uh, several OMG shocking moments, uh, but uh, trust me when I say, I will repeat myself, you have to get past what you're seeing and focus on why you're seeing it. So I talk about all of that and a lot more with Saltburn writer and director Emerald Fennell. So let's get to that interview right now. Emerald Fennell, thank you so much for uh, being on the Awardist podcast. I'm absolutely over the moon thrilled to have you here because I love Saltburn so fucking much. I can't even tell you. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a trip. I did not. I, I got to say, I think the um, the marketing at the point where I had seen it, it was so smart. And by the way, one of our writers had even seen it at Tell You Right, and I edited her review of it. And there's she wrote around certain things so well that I still had no idea what was coming. And I think that's the beauty of this movie is the way like the layers of the onion peel back. Uh, it's just, it's, it's so fantastic. Um, so uh, I'm going to say that I fully expect and hope that we will see you at the 2024 Oscars, but I want to go back three years to the 2021 Oscars where you won best original screenplay for promising young woman. You were also nominated for directing. What do you remember about that night? Aside from it being weird because it was a, you know, a, a pandemic Oscars. <laughs> I mean, I just, do you know what? It was so extraordinary because, you know, you just don't, uh, when we made promising on woman, obviously we could never have anticipated the response to be what it was. And it was so, and I was also just so excited for like Fred, who's the amazing editor who was nominated to, it was just, there was something so gratifying about it because everyone had worked so hard and I just really felt, and they'd all like believed in me. And I was just like a random British woman, heavily pregnant, you know, and, and they had all come and like trusted me and made the movie. Um, so I, I, I just felt so thrilled for everyone that we were there, but, um, I mean, it was, it was so, I, I kind of, it's almost like a blackout just because I was so terrified. I was so excited, but also so terrified. And also what I, what I didn't realize until we sat down. So, so they'd sent a really beautiful, um, kind of email beforehand saying, um, you know, we don't, because it's a non-traditional year because of the pandemic, it's going to be very intimate. And so we don't want people to do acceptance speeches in the old fashioned sense. We want them to just like tell a story for two minutes. And of course I immediately read that and was like, I do not know how to do that. What kind of a story? <laughs> right. And then I just thought, well, th that, that'll be okay because I'll, I'll get the sense from other people. You know, if I have mm -hmm. to think of something, at least I can see on the day what everyone else says and sort of that'll be fine. And then I sat down and the first, the first award being read was Best Original Screenplay. Yep. And so I didn't know. Right out the gate. <laughs> right oh, the gate. And then, no. And then even more unfathomably, I won it. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe what was happening. And I was so shell-shocked and so, and so terrified that I would cry, but cry in a way that was like 
undignified that I was sort of, <laughs> sure. I was sort of, um, I don't remember the speech at all. Just, I just remember being like, uh, kind of in a sort of blackout of terror and joy. And, um, and I've not ever looked back at it because I was too, oh. I'm just too, I just can't, I just don't know. I don't know. It just seems too unreal. And my husband was waiting backstage for me and there was nobody else because of COVID. It was literally just him backstage and I was just holding it and I came back and again, I was <laughs> pregnant again. Yeah. <laughs> and we just like stared, I was just holding it and we were just staring at each other like, what, like, what do you? What just happened? Yeah. And then the best thing that happened. I was waiting in line for the porter potty. Um, I, I think that's what you call them here. Uh, mm-hmm, we call them mm-hmm. in England uh, because it was that kind of a situation right. that year. Mm-hmm. And it actually really, again, I really loved it. It felt very like fun. And I was waiting behind Francis McDormand and I, and I was just holding the, I was just holding the Oscar. Like I'd been told that it's bad luck to put it down. So I was just oh, standing right, right. there mm-hmm. kind of staring into the middle distance, holding him. And she turned around and she said, um, do you want my advice? And I said, yes, please, please. Uh, and she said, of course. She said, Kendall clothes fit him exactly. <laughs> and I was like, well, you're the best person I've ever met. I love you. And it really just kind of calmed me down. <laughs> and that I just. That is so funny. I know. It's the coolest, right? And so. I mean, you know, what a what a ride. Okay, so so let's get into Saltburn then. Um, and, and I certainly hope you're able to give another speech for this movie. But uh, and and you'll be able to pass on that wisdom to perhaps another winner um, next year. But uh, in terms of Saltburn, where did the story start? Like, what was that first little nugget from which you developed this wonderfully twisted tale? It was about eight years ago, and mm. it was Oliver. And what happens is usually people kind of appear. Or images appear, um, like imaginary friends suddenly, and um, and it was Oliver, and he was saying what he the first line in the movie, which is I wasn't in love with him. And then I had, you know, and then there was the image of that same person licking the bottom of a bathtub. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because this the first thing this person is saying is a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that's always a great place to start. And so, you know, bit by bit, things happen and then they coalesce. And over the years, it starts to become more fixed. Yeah. So wh- once once things were coalescing, um, uh, ultimately, where did you find like what what was why was this a story you wanted to tell? Like what what was kind of simmering in you that needed to get out, I suppose? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really funny. It's you often don't know, you know, right? It's like mm. a dream sometimes. The It's not like, I mean, certainly I, I am compelled to write things because they interest me or they concern me or I need to work something out myself um, or try to at least. And so often you don't necessarily know thematically why, maybe sometimes until afterwards, like like during these conversations when you realize, you know, what, where it comes from. But I think for me, I wanted to write something. I love to play with genre. And so I wanted to look at that, you know, something happens in a country house one summer genre can established by sort of Brideshead Revisited and the go-between. And, and I suppose I was, 
I, I was the reason for that is it seems to me to be the place where kind of sex and class and kind of longing all collide. And, but I think more specifically, it was about that feeling that I think all of us have at the moment, which is of a kind of un, a bottomless pit of want and jealousy and need and voyeurism that, that has been enabled really by our sort of social media. And it sounds very kind of trite, but the thing of knowing the thing of like looking at people all the time, looking at food, looking at houses, looking at workout regimes, you know, and our relationship with those things that is both, we, we, we understand that these things, you know, they can't even look back at us, let alone acknowledge us. And, and it seemed to me to be kind of funny, a funny sort of um, version of this sadomasochistic relationship that we in Britain have with the, the aristocracy and with country houses. And it's this sort of, you see it on the internet, you see it, you know, with all the time everywhere you go, that you look at something, you can't stop looking at it. You're obsessed with it. It makes you feel bad. And then the way that you feel bad is then projected back onto that thing that you love or find sexy or find appealing. And so it's this kind of cycle which is sort of slowly driving us all completely mad. But also, you know, it is a it is a satire and it and it does, I think, you know, the the limits of the genre. If there are limits, I I think it's I mean, it's one of my favorite genres and it is about yearning. It's about yearning and it's about completely, um, it's about restraint. You know, you look at the remains of the day even or atonement, it's about restraint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see what happens when you take off those restraints to this genre. And also, you know, in the same way that Promising a Woman dealt with similar things, how do you actually break these systems? How do you, what do you do? How do, how do you do it and 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 actually with promising a woman the truth of it is that it isn't violent it can't be violence because women can't win that physical battle but when it comes to class and wealth you know how do these people get these houses in the first place mm. so it it felt like this kind of it's not just about you know, it's just, it's about how we get what we want, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And then how, you know, empty the getting is really, because mm -hmm. the only way of getting it requires, you know, all sorts of terrible things. Perhaps some sinister deeds along the Maybe. way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. To get that, to get that. Yeah. Um, for our, um, w when we featured this movie in our fall movie preview, you uh, spoke to our um, writer, Lauren Huff, about various inspirations. You just mentioned some of them. Brideshead Revisited, Atonement, um, uh, even Dracula, uh, Paradise, The Handmaiden. Um, it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, these are all movies that like you had seen and that had made a, like, a long-term impression on you? Or, or did you also like dig more? more into the genre uh, to to look at other films as you were prepping things? Oh, of course. I mean, I've, I mean, you know, uh, I don't think there's, I mean, I hope that I'd be able to write a, you know, fairly decent thesis on 
on the genre. I mean, there's of mm. course there's Peter Green, there's all of Peter Greenway, there's almost all of Merchant Ivory, particularly their early work. Mm-hmm. You know, E.M. Forster from a kind of literary standpoint, um, Pete, um, uh, yeah, Pete Hollinghurst, yeah, um, Line of Beauty. I mean, uh, Tom Thomas Hardy's. Uh, um, Jude the Obscure. I mean, look, there's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. Teorama, all of that stuff. It, but, but the thing is, is that if you're if you're making films, I guess, I can't. Certainly for me, I can't pretend a film doesn't exist in the world of films. You know, it's why there are often films in my films. You know, there's Night of the Hunter in Promising a Woman, and in this movie, it's The Ring and Superbad. Like, it's important to me. We as a, if you if you're making movies every single thing on screen your audience is is they are bringing their own library whether it's a dvd library or a book library or their own personal experience or their relationship with the actors you're choosing and so to to not acknowledge to sort of to try and suspend disbelief to the to the point where you're all saying let's pretend these things don't exist that they exist in a vacuum for me, it's really important to say, like, if I'm working with a genre and a very specific subgenre, say, like this gothic country house genre, you know, you can't possibly not acknowledge. And in, and indeed, that genre itself is referential. So you, what you see is that, you know, Jude the Obscure has so many, so many echoes in Brideshead. I mean, they're almost the same kind of, the same like metaphors used the the wall and the door within the door and all of these sorts of things and then you know and then you have the go between and and you they they are all taking that genre and you know something like atonement and and the remains of the day all of them have that that the same kind of gothic structure and they all they all kind of acknowledge each other and they kind of hold hands so i do think it's important to me that you know you d- you don't want to make something derivative. It's not about something being derivative, but it's kind of like, it's also acknowledging that your work, that your work can only really exist because you and the audience know of other things. And I do have mm-hmm. a fixation on T.S. Eliot because I'm a, you know, just a, you know, just massive basic bitch nerd. But, <laughs> you know, he, he, his whole thing was about taking familiar things, whether it's like, you know, kind of parts of the Bible or other poems or, you know, just drunk people spilling out of a pub, whatever it is. He takes things and reassembles something new. And that's that's always going to be part, I think, of anything that I make because that's how I live my life. You and me have references when I mm-hmm, say Paris mm-hmm. Hilton to you, or when I say to a British person, a crunchy bar or the cheeky girls mm-hmm. or super bad or any of these things, you know, we all, mm-hmm. we all yeah. have, we're ta- we talk like this all the time. We live right. like this all the time. So I, I, I do feel it's important when you're kind of making things that those, I don't know that that feels like a part of it. Let me ask you this. What did you learn? What did you take from directing Promising Young Woman that you applied on Sopern or did you feel like you had largely the same approach? I mean, again, it's so, um, it's so difficult to kind of, to know yourself when you're in it. I certainly feel like I was, um, Promising Young Woman was an interesting one because it was my first film. And so having, so, you know, 
it's always a little bit more difficult to explain what you mean to people if you don't have another kind of reference point. So I think, and also because we had so little time and a very low budget, and I wanted to make it in this kind of quite stylized sort of sugar, sugar land world, you know, we, every day was a battle to get, to get everything completed because of course, we were moving locations every day. We were losing time and and it would have been so easy to just sort of go handheld and just not dress rooms and not make sets and all that kind of stuff. But so, so what I mean is that I think I had to be, I, I, I was holding onto the reins incredibly tightly because I was concerned. And also I'd seen female filmmakers get undermined by their crew that that never happened to me by the way on this on that or any of my films I should say but I'd seen it happen before as you know as an actress I'd seen it time and time again and so I was very I was I was very very um I was I was holding on to those reins very tightly and I think probably even though it was the right thing for the movie I hope because it meant that it could be singular and it and it was a pain but you know, we did make it look the way we wanted it to look, given our time constraints and our budget. Um, but I think what it, what I was able to do with Saltburn was I could let go of the reins a little bit just to let everyone else do their work, you know, do the kind of brilliant work that you need. You know, you need to be constantly in every department, including mine, pushing each other to be better, always, always to do something interesting, to do something that might be a huge failure, but could, but could also be transcendent. And I mean that on a day-to-day level, like, you know, what are the details that make this, that make this strange? How does the, how does, what is the consistency of the bathwater? What is the, you know, what, what is the kind of, what, what kind of chocolate are they eating? What, all of that, all of it, all of it, you know, is crucial, but you need to, you need to be able to be collaborative in order to let people push you too. Does that mean that wasn't just regular water in the tub? Mm. Like, did you have to use something different? No, we used water. We oh, used, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we used water, but we used other things too. Ah, got it, got it. Okay, okay, I see. Um, okay, you mentioned that uh, Oliver was kind of the first character, the first person who appeared to you uh, here. At what point did um, Barry Keoghan, uh, uh, no pun intended, reveal himself to you as who your Oliver would be? I just, I just, you know, I, actually, he wasn't in my mind as I wrote it at all, and in many ways, it, it it would have been a more kind of true perhaps to the genre um, and to that kind of doppelganger theme to have found somebody, to have found two actors who kind of looked very similar or whatever. But, but I felt from very early on that we needed somebody who was a kind of stealth agent, you know, and Barry has this extraordinary thing. I mean, I could talk about how, what and why he's so brilliant for forever but he has the uh, his vulnerability is like nothing else you know so when you talk about like banshees it's just like one of the most heartbreaking performances anyone's ever done but he also has this dark charisma and this like insane sex appeal that 
that meant you could see him in this family of kind of towering, beautiful aristocrats. You could see him kind of getting in through those cracks. And I just, you know, I just think he's the most beguiling, fascinating performer. And he's, you know, and I like to do really, really, really super, super close-ups. Mm. And the thing with Barry is that the closer you get, the less you know, the more mm. beguiling, the more yeah. fascinating, you know, he's just, and so I, um, I met him. I loved him. Um, you know, he's like me. He just wants to get into it, you know, got no interest in like small talk. We just want to get into it. Um, and we, you know, and, and again, it was, we, we, we are, you know, we were pushing each other a lot both of us all the time, you know, like, you know, pushing out of, yeah, just, it was a, it was a, a really wonderful experience because um, we both kind of wanted the same thing, which was to make something that made people feel like got people's blood up, made people want to leave and kind of commit some kind of fucking act of some kind yeah. you know to mm-hmm. to make people feel to not to to not enjoy something from afar kind of passively but to feel to feel something and that's mm-hmm. really hard it's really hard when we are all so used to seeing so much all the time and so barry really he's so you know he's so he's so the things that he, the things that other people would find very difficult, he doesn't find difficult at all. Mm, okay, so that's what I was going to say. Did, did certain scenes take much yeah. convincing? But it sounds like yeah. no. Mm. And I would never convince. Also, that sounds very kind of prissy, mm. but it's really important sure, to, sure. to sort of to always to always kind of say that like part of being able to make things like this is to have a huge amount of trust between yourselves, all of the actors, and an amazing intimacy coordinator who we did have, Miriam. But but that I would never ever coerce someone into doing something i would never try and persuade them but no but but that but again i'm not not saying that just to be kind of trite but i'm saying it because you can only make something like this with trust people have to trust that they've already got to be willing to go there totally right and it has Mm -hmm. to be mutual and it has to be both of you kind of tumbling off a cliff together and with the with the kind of very sincere belief that you could like smash on the rocks as well as dive Mm. in like it's got to feel like that all the time that's you know and then that's what the audience feels too because I truly think something can only feel visceral if you understand Mm. that everyone is all in it's not kind of a you know an art form it's not some choreographed thing it's properly getting to the center of something or trying to right right um I I want to talk to you about the rest of the cast, but to the point of what you're saying, I, I, and I'm pretty sure you have you have seen the film with audiences, correct? Yeah. Okay, so there are there are, I would say four or five scenes that elicit a certain kind of reaction. At, at first, perhaps it's a bit uh, of shock at what they're witnessing, but then, and I this is what I've loved the two times I've seen the movie. Then watching at first the shock settle in when people, when, when there's the realization of the purpose of those scenes 
and what the deeper, darker underlying meaning is. Having said all of that, is is there one in particular, a scene, a moment that you were worried about how it would land? Well, you know, without being facetious, I was never worried. I was only worried that I could that I that 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 there are certain scenes that I needed to make sure that I did all the work and me and Victoria did all the work in the edit so that we mm-hmm. knew that the audience would get to the stage where they understood why it was. And also, you sure. know, I'm interested in the thing that I I kind of use as an example, which, you know, and you kind of get a good idea of whether maybe you're going to enjoy this movie or not, is like the the pleasure disgust of of popping as it. That kind mm-hmm. of squeamish sensual sensuality yep. that mm-hmm. you get. And and so what this film is always kind of asking and looking at is like, what do we want and how are we going to get it? Mm. What is it really like to feel completely taken, drilled down in into co- total psychotic desire and want to be consumed entirely by that? You know, in order to do that, you can't have, you can't like pussyfoot around it. And I think also... Mm-hmm. What I'm always keen to remind people is that if, you know, hopefully people who are listening to this because spoilers have seen the movie, but the nudity in this film, which there is a lot, um, is never, ever about sex. It's about grief or despair or Mm -hmm. horror or shame, or it's about triumph. And it's an act Mm -hmm. of desecration, joyful, (laughs) joyful or otherwise. And the sex scenes in this movie, of which there are also many, are rarely below the shoulder blades and contain no nudity at all. And they are unbearably sexy. But the audience is doing all of the work. I mean, it's it's not an NC-17 movie. It's an R-rated movie. And people can't believe that. But actually, when you break it down to the sum of its parts, what you realize is that nobody's doing anything. What you're seeing hits so deeply. But really, it's just mm-hmm. a person in a room on their own drinking something. Right. It's not. You know, we're not seeing people go go at it, you know, naked. And as a and as a woman who's grown up watching women's bodies be kind of continuously, relentlessly exposed and sort of um treated poorly on film, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting that they, these are the things that we find shocking. Uh, no, I, I I totally hear you. And that's um I mean I will admit it first. I, I think the 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 shock for me was just the fact that I was seeing something that I'd never seen before in film. I just think it's uh, so wonderful that you did that um, because to, to your point, we see all kinds of body horrors, objectification, all of that, uh, you know, in the history of cinema, but there are scenes in this that I've never seen before. And I, I just, I applaud you so much for that. Thank you. And also I just think so much of it is a bit, what I kind of always like to think and what the cast and the crew and everyone in showing, in just conceiving of and making this film, there is a kind of honesty mm. because it doesn't come from nowhere. You know, these these things don't come from nowhere. They exist in one's mind. So therefore what I'm, I hope it's able to do is say like, is give people permission to feel yeah. or to question yes. if, if they feel, if they feel disgusted 
to question why, if they feel turned on, to be interested in that, if they, you know, mm-hmm. to just to just understand that you can respond, that you have permission to laugh, you have permission to mm-hmm. be horrified, you have permission to be aroused, that all of these things can happen all in the same moment. Like that's just the, that's what it's all about for me. And it's why it's, I'm so, so hopeful that people will go and see it in the movie theatres because it's, it's just a different experience when you've got somebody sitting next to you. It's so different. Could not agree more with that. See it in theaters. Lastly here, uh, I've got to give a shout out to the rest of this incredible cast. Jacob Elordi, Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, Alison Oliver, who I have to admit I was not familiar with, and she's just fantastic. Um, I hope I say his last name correctly. Archie Madekwe? Archie Madekwe, yeah. Madekwe. And then, of course, Carrie Mulligan, who just... uh, (laughs) Just absolutely kills it in the few scenes that she is in Um, this cast. I mean, uh, you I I mean, you you found the pot of gold. You hit the jackpot. You won the lottery with these folks. The thing is, is that they're just they're all sublime. They're all sublime. They're all funny, 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 funny. It's always got to be funny. At the end of the day, it's only possible because the film is is a comedy, really. And Mm -hmm. and they're just all of them completely ins- I couldn't believe it you know I just couldn't believe it when we got in the room to rehearse everyone together just like the charisma the sheer mm. the chemistry the like yeah the kind of electrical in- like the, the electrical pulses like coming off of these people is so exciting mm. and they're and they're lovely and you know again they just um they just they are all they want to do is make things yeah I think those electrical pulses uh you can see it on screen uh, it, it seems like you have a cast who is really excited to tell a, a different, unique, compelling story. So um, kudos to everyone involved, truly. Uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of fantastic movies this year, I will say. Um, yours is at the top of the list um, for me. So, oh, wow. Um, Thank yeah. you. Bravo. Congrats. Yeah, of course. Of course. I, I'm, I'm shouting it from the rooftops. Folks, go see Saltburn. Yay. Uh, so, yeah. Well... Our time is up, um, but I thank you very much for for, uh, spending a a bit of your day with me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking so many thoughtful questions and for loving the film. Well, let me just say, uh, it's something we say um perhaps too often here on the podcast but emerald is just one of those people i could uh, i could kind of chat with all day just also just because of uh, the her knowledge of film and her references and her uh inspirations all of that um she's such a fascinating filmmaker and i can't wait to see what she continues to do um that said saltburn we have a lot more on this movie at ew.com lauren huff dug in deep with uh, emerald as well as barry keoghan about what's being called the bathtub scene, the vampire scene, and the grave scene. Um, I won't say any more than that if you have not seen the film, Um, as well as that uh, dementedly joyful, is what I will call it, final scene of the film. Um, Joey, uh, I know we've talked about there's obviously a whole lot more than the superficial stuff here, but is there, was there a moment in particular that like, um, to to uh, bring in one of your other loves, um, pop culture loves, a moment that gagged and gooped you? Well, the Sophie Ellis Baxter scene had, I think, I, my cheeks hurt from smiling. So I don't think I have like smiled that hard in a movie 
like just the whole scene i just was like the biggest dumbest like gooning grin like on my face (laughs) it was just that scene is just so magical and it was just so perfect um and i think what else gooped and gagged me uh alice and oliver's big scene toward the end yeah that was just knocked me completely out and mm-hmm. also again carrie mulligan like she just yeah <laughs> that's like i, I know she only yeah. has like f- maybe 60 seconds of screen time total but i mean she's just so fucking funny and these like little teeny tiny little parts and it just so yeah gooped gooped and gagged by miss mulligan yeah let's say that the way rosamund pike's character elspeth talks about uh, uh carrie's character pamela is just it's so it's so wild. Um, and then there's a moment later. Well, I don't want to say, but she just says she'll do anything for attention. <laughs> um, and I oh, my God, it's just it's so delicious. Um, anyway, folks, if you have not seen it yet, Saltburn is playing in theaters now. I do hope you will check it out. Uh, Joey, that is uh, that is it. Thanks for joining me again this week. So glad you're back. Um, thank you. I am glad that I am back too and um (laughs) yeah we'll leave it there all right all right that's (laughs) fine uh thanks so much to all of you for listening if you like what you're hearing here on the awardist follow rate the podcast and leave us an award-winning review on apple podcasts and to keep the conversation with us going you can follow entertainment weekly on all socials we are at ew on x formerly known as twitter and at entertainment weekly everywhere else you can also tag me at Jared Hall. We will see you back here next week and every day at EW.com. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>